0: Back up to the vertical base, all right hand, found its mark, and down goes Buck. No question about the size and ability of Hunter Hearst Helmsley making his debut on the Action Zone here this week. From Television City in Hollywood, this podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Following rustic exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 51. Of greetings from Allentown. I am your host Peter Winson and today we're going to be taking a look at the Action Zone for the first time in 41 shows. The WWF Action Zone from April 30th 1995. Now you're probably thinking 1995 WWF why are you even bothering with this? Well you have to expose yourself to some new things like I did with Memphis last week. And 95 WWF is a bit of a blind spot for me. I became more interested in it after reading James Dixon's series of books that came out a few years ago. The first one was called Titan Sinking, which is all about the year 1995. And, you know, I kind of want to cu- find out for myself if it's as bad as everybody says it was or what the deal was. Because it is kind of a blank spot in my wrestling fandom before we get fully into that show let me get in my plugs real quick you can email the show greetings from allentown at gmail.com facebook.com slash greetings from allentown and on twitter give me a follow at gf allentown pod and you are probably listening to the show on the pro wrestling only feed in association with place to be nation do your Amazon shopping, go to placetobenation.com slash Amazon and a portion of your purchase will be kicked back to Place to Be for site costs. You know the whole deal. I mean, you've, you've heard about that for years. you heard me go on and on about it. In fact, I made a purchase through Place to Be Nation slash Amazon in the past week and you may actually notice a difference actually relating to this show right now as... I got a little tired of using the one microphone that I have and somebody a lot of people have asked like what equipment do you use in doing your podcast and for me it's really just a laptop and a little tiny microphone not not tiny tiny but a small microphone that's on a little tripod that I usually have on a coffee table in front of me or on the kitchen table where I sometimes record as well. I invested in a headset with a microphone and I am not entirely sure what it's going to do to the sound. It seemed good enough to me when I was checking my levels before I started recording here. So I'm just hoping that it works out all right because I like this thing where I can podcast while lying down instead of hunched forward, sitting on the couch. Like right now I'm watching the Women's Royal Rumble. I'm recording this on Sunday night late and the Women's Royal Rumble is going on. And I figure I might as well record since I'm going to have it on mute as a sort of Stephanie control because I will not be able to handle this. A lot of the negativity that I have towards the current product is easily avoidable either one by not watching, but I'm just I'm not going to do that or by muting some of the announcing, you just just watching the action and taking it in for yourself, there's a definite benefit to that. So it is what it is. And speaking of announcers, the action zone for this episode, anyway, or at least starting with this episode had a rather interesting duo with Todd Pettengill teamed with Jim Ross on this show, Jim Ross back in the booth as Gorilla Monsoon was doing shows with Todd Pettengill, which is a, certainly an interesting dynamic. It was very different from the Vince McMahon-Todd Pettengill duo from the end of November of 94, a show that I covered in episode 10, because at least Gorilla would get certain pop culture references, whereas Vince would be completely oblivious and really sort of make it obvious that he just didn't know what the hip... Toddster was talking about and I find myself over time I, I think I'm softening on Todd Pettengill like I, I was always one of those people like oh he he sucks and yes he, he does have his annoying points but on this show he has a lot of fun little quips there he he did exactly what they asked him to do he's not Sean Mooney or anything like that but I think he's better on the play-by-play and calling matches than Sean Mooney was which is you know perhaps a difficult thing to admit because Pettingill at the time you just didn't like him at all and then you always thought of him as a joke and even on that first one he wasn't playing to Vince's strengths when I covered that other show but I find myself really starting to like him a little bit and I'm wondering if there's Something wrong with me? No, of course not. There's there's nothing wrong with me. You can like whoever whoever you want to like. It's I'm not saying that you know he's Gordon Soley calling Florida in 1982 here, but he's better than he's given credit for, which might be a low bar for him to clear. So this 1995 WWF, you're in the aftermath of WrestleMania 11, which was sort of a dud of a show by all standards, generally one of the five worst WrestleManias, nothing too memorable taking place there. In fact, you had a bad Bret Hart, Bob Backlund, I quit match. You had Diesel and Shawn Michaels, and Shawn Michaels pretty much going into business for himself and effectively forcing the babyface turn upon everybody, which would screw up the Bam Bam Bigelow face turn that was certainly in the works as well, coming off the heels of his loss to Lawrence Taylor. So they're leading into this In Your House 1 pay-per-view, where they would give away an actual house, and it ended up being an 11-year-old kid who got it, which strikes me as a little weird. You'd think that for home ownership, although I guess if you're under 18, you could still own a house, but it just seemed like weird that they didn't have, must be age 18 or over or anything like that. The idea of the pay-per-view was to make it sort of like what Saturday night's main event was to the earlier generation of WWF fans, wherein they would have a shorter show, so instead of a three-hour pay-per-view, it would be a two-hour show. You wouldn't necessarily have all your stars on it each month, so you wouldn't burn everybody out by having Bret Hart on there month after month after month, or Diesel, or what have you. And they would only charge $14.95 for the pay-per-view rather than the normal $24.95, which was kind of an interesting move. But the first in-your-house did a very strong buy rate, and none of the in-your-houses matched that level going forward for quite a few years. I think it took until after in-your-house name was de-emphasized at the Ground Zero pay-per-view in 1997. So they're making some changes here. You get some new guys coming in with that post-mania change over there. And one of them is a guy by the name of Hunter Hearst Helmsley, who makes his long-awaited in-ring debut for the WWF here. And we're still stuck with him, and he still wrestles every so often, Triple H. But this is where it all began (laughs) for him on an episode of The Action Zone. Although this taping here which was in Moline, Illinois, was also a Wrestling Challenge taping at the t- same time. Wrestling Challenge in 1995 is a show that nobody really cares about to the point where you can't even really find that many of them on YouTube because who's watching Wrestling Challenge in '95? A lot of the syndicated slots around the country had been dropped, which is why you saw more of an emphasis going to Monday Night Raw at that time. But they're still running angles here on the action zone. You have an intercontinental title match and some controversy here today with Jeff Jarrett making a second consecutive appearance in greetings from Allentown, and he is taking on Bob Holly, it would be kind of an unexpected opponent for him, as he was really kind of more in tag teams alongside the One Two Three Kid and there tag title win at the Royal Rumble earlier that year. But he stepped in for 1-2-3 kid due to an injury that had occurred to Sean Waltman shortly before that. Interestingly, also, and this surprised me to see, is at the previous Monday Night Raw on April 24th was the highest rated Raw in quite some time, drew a number of 3.9 Which kind of surprised me, because you say, okay, 1995, it's going to be one of the worst years in company history. And yes, it was in many ways, but it's not like the ratings went down the tubes. It's just that really nobody was going to live shows or anything like that. And speaking of this taping here, I was particularly struck by reading some of the Dark Match results, which is always kind of interesting, because it... It certainly gives you a feel for what they were doing, what they were emphasizing in the product at the time. And the show in Moline on April 26, which had an attendance of 5,500 but was uh, heavily papered according to the history of WWE.com, the dark matches are rather fascinating here. You had Undertaker pinning comma. The Smoking Guns defeated Yokozuna and Owen Hart, who were the new WWF Tag Team Champions, via disqualification when Jim Cornette interfered. Bertha Fay defeated an unknown. Now, Bertha Fay was the new female challenger brought in to face Alundra Blaze, who came in like a complete badass at the post-mania Raw several weeks before, and then she was changed into a polka-dot-wearing joke which, (laughs) stop me if you've heard that one before, please. And then this match really threw me for a loop here. WWF World Champion Diesel pinned Psycho Sid with a side slam at the 28-second mark, which is hilarious because there's your main event for In Your House 1, and it's on this show here, and it's over in 28 seconds. So I wonder what it must have been like to be in that live crowd there And you see that match, and it's over in pretty much a flash. Didn't really make a whole lot of sense there. Now, in addition to the jarrett Holly Intercontinental match and the Triple H debut appearance, we also have the Native American Tatanka fully embedded in the Million Dollar Corporation around this time. Also see the Smoking Guns in action as well. And we're also going to see an interesting little vignette. It was one of a series where Bob Backlund goes on spring break and is his usual crazy self here. Unfortunately, this is not one of the better ones of these. There was a much better one on the Raw before this and on Superstars that same weekend. But we'll take what we can get here. So there's a lot to get to. So why don't we just jump right into the show? As I do every week here, I look at the American Top 40 for the weekend that the show came out. And with this being the end of April in 95, when I had just turned 16, and you know, you're in high school, you're going to high school dances, I'm pretty passionate about... Some of the names that are on this list. Yes, Notorious B.I.G.'s Big Papa is there at number seven. We also have Montel Jordan, a lot of TLC there. It's also stuff like Sheryl Crow, who, like, I went on, like, probably my 500th lifetime rant about how terrible Sheryl Crow is. Except Soak Up the Sun, I guess, is a decent song, but that, that didn't come until later. As I recall. Freak Like Me is on there at number three. I'm not going through the entire thing. I'm not trying to make this the pop culture section like the Place to Be podcast here. It's just that I'm very passionate about some of the names that are on here. Like Jamie Walters, hold on. Ugh, what a what a terrible song that is. I mean. Ugh. Anyway, just get myself off music here. So we got the recap of the Bam Bam Bigelow diesel match from The previous Raw, they actually go into this before they play the theme song for the action zone, which I kind of like. It's kind of like when, you know, a TV drama would, would do like two or three minutes of action and then they would go into the theme song. I think they would do that on Dallas from time to time. It's probably the only time you'll ever hear Dallas compared with WWF Action Zone. But this Bigelow Diesel match, you had the Million Dollar Corporation at ringside, or at least DiBiase and Tatanka were there it's a decent match it's not remember this is diesel trying to carry the company and he just was not enough of a veteran i don't think in the ring to be putting on quote-unquote world champion caliber matches or at least what people had become used to with bret hart over the previous couple of years So your finish here is that Bam Bam is tripped running the ropes by Tatanka, allegedly by accident here. By the way, Bam Bam in this match here had a very conspicuous black eye, and I looked everywhere. I looked through observer recaps and whatnot, and I could not find out what the deal was with that. The closest thing that I saw to explaining what the deal was with Bam Bam's black eye was that he just heard it during a match. With somebody laid in a stiff shot there, kind of like, kind of like Brock Lesnar on Braun Strowman the other night at the Royal Rumble. That was really something else. After Braun got a little too, little too snug with a knee when Brock was down on the canvas, I that was the very definition of a receipt there. Diesel puts away Bigelow with the jackknife and barely gets him up. Maybe the biggest guy that Kevin Nash would ever try to jackknife, at least until the infamous giant incident at NWO sold out 1998. I guess it was WCW, NWO, but who really cares? So the Million Dollar Corporation now fires Bigelow. And Bigelow decides to say, you can't fire me, I quit. Which I think is a stupid move because... That does, with it being so public, he can no longer file for unemployment insurance. But I do think that this is probably a contractor sort of deal here. But there are, you know, implications there. And the Million Dollar Corporation comes in the ring and starts laying the boots to Bam Bam. Bam Bam had gotten a little bit of an edge early and was going after DiBiase before he found himself outnumbered and Diesel comes from the back and saves him and they shake hands which is very interesting if you, if you know anything about the political climate at the time and how Bam Bam feels he was aced out of a better spot by some click maneuverings of Kevin Nash and Shawn Michaels among others so kind of an interesting thing turn Bigelow over to the babyface side you give Diesel a new friend there Speaking of friends, our old friend from last week, Jeff Jarrett, is back, and he's defending his Intercontinental title against Bob Holly, and both of them have a little bit of promo time early in this show here. Holly says he's planning to take it to the finish line, which, ha, ha, ha. And Jarrett's promo really struck my ear kind of weird. I I think he had something of a verbal tick when he was double J. Ha
0: ha ha! Bob Sparkplug Holly, you've hit the big time. You've got a shot at the champion double J Jeff Jarrett for the Intercontinental Title. Well you're gonna find out today <laughs> just how great I am.
2: <laughs> Ain't he great? <laughs> Pardon me a moment. Ha <laughs> ha! Hey Nelson, he's really hurt! I think he broke his
1: leg
0: I said ha ha
1: Good to see that Jarrett is laughing about things And enjoying himself Because we do know from the Simpsons as well That laughter is the language of the soul Quoteth Pablo Neruda Anyway we have Triple H here Making his debut against Rock and roll Buck Zumhoff One of the most reprehensible human beings Ever to be part of the wrestling business And Unfortunately, I had to look into him a little bit more here. So what I find out is we all kind of remember a few years ago, he's arrested, he 12 felony counts of criminal sexual misconduct of sexually abusing his daughter over a 12-year period. And then he's when he's convicted of it in March of 2014, he tries to bolt out of the courthouse as if that was going to work, but he's not all that fast. They got him and He gets 25 years in prison, which honestly doesn't seem like enough to me. I know that he's in his early 60s here, but I say just lock him away for the end of time, till the end of time. So you remember that story. But what I did not remember was that he was jailed in 1986 when he was found guilty of sexual misconduct involving a minor and got 36 months in prison. So how the hell did this guy get work with the AWA with the WWF and you know starting up his own program? How did he have any credibility to do anything in this business? And sometimes I just scratch my head, but you live and you learn I guess things were different back then and I know I spent time on the last show praising the stud stable for hiring the master of pain out of prison but he was a younger man and I think his crimes were a little bit different than sex crimes against children here so anyway oh god so we have Triple H here who some may believe that he's committed crimes against the wrestling industry but certainly nothing of the heinous nature there I mean yes he he may have buried more than a few people but he had his vignettes airing on the tv leading up to this point point. and this is why I'm glad I watch the tv shows leading up to what I'm covering to get a fuller background because I got to see a couple of the Hunter Hearst Helmsley vignettes there and you can see the influence of Steven Regal Upon him, as they were tag team partners in WCW. And the story goes that Regal told him that he needed to go to the WWF if he wanted to have more ring time because there were not as many house shows in WCW. So he was going to have less of an opportunity to gain experience and become all that he could be. But I'm watching the various vignettes, and he strikes me really as sort of a homeless man's version of Lord Stephen Regal some of the mannerisms are there because it's kind of the same snobbish character except a American aristocrat rather than a British aristocrat and some of them uh, left me really puzzled where he calls out the bushwhackers and the smoking guns like why is this guy who is going to be a single wrestler calling out tag teams for being I don't know dirty or not up to his snobbish standard or whatever and I I was thinking about it some more and somebody had posted a Triple H thing from WCW where he did a promo when he changed his name from Terror Rising to Jean-Paul Levesque and that aired on the June 18th 1994 episode of WCW Saturday Night and I thought hmm that is that is really weird that you have this guy and he is changing his identity The same week that Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson have been found murdered in Los Angeles. So I'm not saying that Triple H did it in this case. I'm just saying that it would have been good police work to at least ask him a few questions with the timing of when he changes his name and all that. But yeah, he's really just a snob. There's no indication of what he's going to become. Like I said, it's like a down-market version of Regal because his in-ring work is not quite there. Todd Pettengill kicks it off with a rather interesting remark of the appearance of Helmsley.
0: Well, look at him. He's so smug and arrogant, you know? I mean, he thinks he's the only one that matters. Look at him.
1: Kind of makes me think of those quote-unquote mark pictures that you see with Triple H and somebody who has done something in NXT like when Andrade Sia, and Almas wins the NXT title and then he has his picture taken with both Zelina Vega and Triple H and like says, "Oh, I'm so proud of you," or something to that effect. It's like, okay. I'm wondering, this is Triple H's debut match. Who did he have his mark picture with after this one? Did he go and have it with Pat Patterson or somebody Patterson might not even been there in 95, who who knows, really, but You know, look, I liked NXT a lot from 2014 to 2016. Might have been my favorite period of watching wrestling on a weekly basis. I specifically love that time frame in 2014 when they would secretly air the new episode at like 3 or 4 in the afternoon on the network when NXT was still airing on Thursday. And the storytelling week to week, and I guess he does deserve credit for... You know, making that happen here. But honestly, I want to give credit to the talent that is there. You know, your Finn Balor's, your Sami Zayn's, your Neville's, Sasha Banks, Charlotte, and all that. And also Ryan Ward, who I guess was doing the booking of NXT at that time, and Dusty Rhodes, who until his passing in 2015 had a huge hand in the success that was going on there. So back to this match here. We start with an early waistlock go-behind by Triple H. <laughs> I think Buck Zumhoff is getting a lot of that go-behind move while in the joint there, but he's able to escape this time. Unlike, you know, as I said, when he was convicted there and he tried to flee the courthouse. He was unable to escape. And it's at this point that I noticed that Triple H has a freaking bow in his hair, which... You know, you you, you you watch this character in the very beginning And you see things, alright, well this didn't work Or that didn't work He's got the riding pants which would stick around up through 1997 But a freaking bow in his hair That's that's not even aristocratic I don't even know why you would even have that So he has trouble getting out of a wrist lock And then just kind of nails Zoom off with a right hand That was actually kind of funny A European uppercut Again, shades of regal here And Todd Pettengill asks a question wondering if Triple H has ever had Lucky Charms in his life.
0: Think he's ever had a bowl of Lucky Charms? I doubt it. I mean, the guy's missing out on all the pleasurable things in life. Probably ate porridge that his butler prepared!
1: I don't know where JR is going with the notion that porridge is somehow this meal for the rich that that didn't really make a whole heck of a lot of sense and I can't say that I'm on board with Pettengill and his love of Lucky Charms there's too much crap in that and like marshmallows like that's not what I want when I get up for breakfast I, I was very much a at least when I would have cereal as a kid my number one was probably Fruit Loops because you know oh it's nominally healthy because it has fruit in the name even though it's really just all sugar i was also a big fan of the chocolate cereals cereals like cocoa pebbles or count chocula even when you could get it
0: what is the deal with count chocula i mean are we supposed to be afraid of this guy
1: all right enough nonsense here this is very serious business this is hunter hearst helmsley's debut But again, I'm distracted by just how pale Buck Zumhoff is. Something that, you know, yeah, he grew up in Minnesota. But, you know, maybe a little bit of a tanning booth. Maybe could have kept him out of a little bit of trouble. You know, except for the skin cancer and all that. Gets a forearm off an Irish whip. But his hip lock attempt is blocked. And Hunter works that into an RKO. Or a proto-RKO. RKO and he was using a couple of different finishers before he would settle on the pedigree including one that was very reminiscent of what would become a stone-cold stunner and he did kind of hit this RKO out of nowhere history of WWE.com calls it a diamond cutter and that might actually be more correct there I don't know if DDP was using it at this point in 95 so this might have been something that was out there in the ether up for grabs and yep Triple H debuted against Buck Zumhoff, and I know he's probably a little worried that we might Google Buck Zumhoff's name. It's kind of like he said with China and discussing her Hall of Fame candidacy on the Stone Cold podcast. But yes, he debuted against this guy, and you can't erase any of that. And the bow and all that stuff would go away, but it's really kind of interesting to see him here at this time.
0: Oh, he is, yeah, no. To be so smug and arrogant. Look at that. You can tell that nose is used to being up in the air. Well, Unbelievable. I don't like this guy. No, I'll tell you what I do like, though, and what I'm excited to talk about, In Your House. Yeah, man. All right, folks, don't guys in the truck, if you can hear us, roll the open to the report. Let's do it.
1: That first In Your House aired on May 14th, 1995. I was a little busy that day. Even if I was watching the product, I wouldn't have... Gotten it on pay-per-view. I, I was at the. This was well before I had Bruins season tickets, but I still went to the playoff game against the New Jersey Devils in part because it would be the last game of any relevance in the Boston Garden, and I had pretty good seats. I had scored myself a pretty good seat for that game. Bruins lost three to two in that one. They were just completely outmatched by a New Jersey team that would. Surprise everybody and go on and win the Stanley Cup, sweeping the powerhouse Detroit Red Wings in the final. Anyway, the pay per view was stressed as a great value at $14.95, as I had mentioned. So cheaper than the other ones, a little bit shorter, which makes them more rewatchable. Because if you sit down and watch one of the early in your houses, yes, it's not the greatest stuff in the world, and a lot of them are just completely forgettable. But, you know, it's, it's two hours max And some of them even less than that Like the In Your House Canadian Stampede Which was one of the last ones Before they de-emphasized the In Your House moniker Is one of the easiest shows to watch from start to finish And yeah, it helps that every single match on that show is good But it just really flies by Unfortunately, I haven't been able to watch all of In Your House 1 In my research here the match the opening match between Hakushi and Bret Hart is a dandy of about but every time i look at Hakushi and Shinja and i mentioned this to someone on twitter about a week ago is Shinja who is Akio Sato from the Orient Express wearing white makeup all over his face when I look at him I just see Abe Knuckleball Schwartz because of the white paint and I have to remind myself that it's the guy from the Orient Express who got replaced by Paul Diamond about that pay-per-view price though of fourteen ninety five, dollars this is kind of an interesting thing in that well if I lower the price we'll get more buys and that was correct at first but as people found out that they were lesser pay-per-views and that really stuff wasn't going to happen on them a lot of people started to save their money and bank it for the bigger pay-per-views over the course of the year it's almost kind of like the price of beer when you go to a bar you can see oh charge seven eight nine dollars for a beer but if you cut it down to five or six you think well we'll sell more of this and that might be true but a lot of people who don't necessarily know these things, will say, well, this has got to be the best beer because it's the most expensive one there. And so it is with the pay-per-view prices where, well, this doesn't matter because it's a lot cheaper than all the other ones. So it kind of gives off that vibe a little bit. And the in-your-house gimmick was also based on giving away a house in Orlando, Florida, which was won, as I said, by an 11-year-old who then sold it for $175,000 Which is way more than I think you would have gotten for a house In Orlando, Florida during that time period I mean, I'm not too familiar with the Florida real estate market But my house that I actually live in was built in 1995 And it went for way less than 175, At least originally according to the real estate transactions But... Uh, Of course, I live way out in the boonies up by the New Hampshire border, so it's not like living in the city of Orlando or whatever. Anyway, we get to a promo here, and our main event match is Sid against Diesel for the WWF title. And Sid was being billed by Ted DiBiase as the crown jewel of the Million Dollar Corporation. And it was revealed on the Raw right before... In your house That Sid and DiBiase Had been working together And this is This is some black ops Stuff here Where DiBiase said That Shawn Michaels Came to him Looking for a bodyguard And DiBiase Suggested Sid Knowing that Sid Would eventually turn On Shawn Michaels And set all of this up It's very kind of Deep stuff there And Sid has a promo So fasten your seatbelts Everybody And And He is outlining the benefits of unleaded gasoline over diesel.
2: See, diesel, it's two weeks away,
3: and I want to ask you something. What are you thinking about? Is it in your mind that you have now made the greatest mistake of all times? Oh yeah, I know you're sitting there, and you're telling everybody, yeah, I'm not scared. I'm going to take the big guy. He has nothing to offer me. But you're wrong.
1: You are wrong. For all of his faults, you got to admire Sid and his courteousness there. Because I'm just assuming that this promo was recorded in a public library.
0: Which is why he is talking
1: like this. It's really the normal Sid intensity there. But almost in like a hushed whisper there. And then they go to Diesel who is as bland as ever. The, a true eunuch champion, if there ever was one. Where it was, uh, it's like, come on. He just needed to allow Diesel to modify his character to just be a wisecracking baby face instead of a wisecracking heel. And I think people would have accepted things a lot better instead of just this goofy tall guy here. They go back to JR and Todd. And they talk about the 1-2-3 kid's neck injury, which had taken place a couple of days before this. And he would be out for two months and would return at the infamous King of the Ring 1995 card. And Todd and JR, they run down the card for In Your House with the Smoking Guns getting a rematch against Owen Hart and Yokozuna, King of the Ring qualifier between Adam Baum and Mabel. Dun-dun-dun. Yes. This is the Mabel King of the Ring, and that would be his qualifying match to get in. And I defended the Mabel push a couple of episodes ago that when you have a guy who's bigger than your big man champion, it certainly makes sense to try and push him to the top there. I think maybe there were certain elements along the way that they could have changed but the interesting thing about this segment and it's just one of those things where jr and pettingill are sitting at the broadcast desk and facing the camera it's funny that todd seems to be the one who's leading in this segment after all the action zone is his show jim ross is there it was gorilla the week before so ross is new to this show so this is this is the todd pettingill show so he is kind of right to lead here
2: I'm gonna go in the house of stone and blind. I shall not cry for the leave behind go in the of
1: Now I know earlier I had said that I was very passionate about the songs that were in the top 40 around this time, but that song there is by a guy named Martin Page, and I literally did not know who did that song until probably about a year ago when it came on a serious radio and you get the little thing that says who did it I'm like whatever I, <laughs> I barely even think about that song but speaking of stone we have tom stone here I, I can't believe that he's still around in 1995 wwf doing quality enhancement work that he would always do he is teaming with dave siegfried or dave siegfried's they are taking on the smoking guns but before we get into the match we do have the promotional consideration provided by a nerf hunter gun mega man times two which got nothing to do with tom mcgee i i'm i'm assuming and gravity cologne for men so i'm still pulling in you know okay sponsors in 1995 and stone here starts off with a little hip lock offense and These two guys, Stone and Siegfried, get in quite a bit against the smoking guns who are always in the tag team title picture. Of course, they would fail to regain the titles from Owen and Yokozuna at the first In Your House. And I was a little harsh on them when I've talked about them in the past where I sang a song that was set to the All in the Family theme just lamenting the demise of the tag division. And neither of these guys really has ever held all that much appeal to me, either Billy or Bart Gunn. I mean, the, the biggest that I've been a fan of either one of them, and one of them was in DX, was the point where Bart Gunn knocked out Bradshaw. The second that his fist made contact with Bradshaw's head, that was the peak of my love for Bart Gunn. I'm pretty sure. Now... The jobbers get a lot of offense here, so it's I guess maybe it's an interesting match in that regard. But thank God for Todd Pettengill, and that is something I never thought I would ever say in my life here because he inserts a few things that uh, I can discuss that really have nothing to do with wrestling. Todd takes a look at Tom Stone and asked a question about him possibly being a scab
0: you know tom stone's also a replacement umpire i didn't know that yeah but he was supposed to work a game in canada and of course they said no replacement ups there so he's able to be on the zone this afternoon well those replacement ups are terrible
1: okay first of all i didn't know that jr was such a staunch union man there secondly tom stone kind of does look like the kind of guy who would be a replacement major league baseball umpire and this is Pettengill actually weaving in something that was going on in the news at this time in 1995. Everybody remembers the baseball players strike, which lasted from August of 1994 up through April of 95, when basically a court decision allowed them to return to work under what was the old agreement. But I had completely forgotten about the fact that at the same time, Starting on January 1st, somehow, even though it was the off season and the players were on strike, the Major League Baseball owners also locked out the umpires as well. So you had kind of a weird situation of a replacement player spring training, which, by the way, I attended when I was in Florida in 1995. My mother almost ran over a bunch of scab royals on the way to Baseball City just outside of Orlando. In any event, you had a replacement player games and replacement umpires at the same time and the umpire thing didn't get settled until the second week of the season because they didn't start until about april 26 it was so right before this i think opening day was the wednesday before this action zone here i had just completely forgotten that there was this labor dispute going on as well there was also an nba lockout in 1995 and a NHL lockout that extended into 1995 so it was kind of a rough time to be a sports fan the one the one that everybody remembers is when the umpires all quit in 1999 in basically in lieu of going on strike and the owners basically said all right we accept your resignations (laughs) they hired all new umpires which is one of the all-time great labor backfires in American history, and what he was saying about Canada there is that Ontario has much stricter labor regulations than in the United States. So replacement umpires would not have been allowed to work games at the Sky Dome in Toronto. It's the same thing would have happened if they had to field replacement players. They wouldn't have been able to play any of the games the Blue Jays in the province of Ontario. So it was kind of a awkward situation. They were heading towards there and then you got dave siegfried here who is teaming with tom stone and todd says that he saw him at the mirage a reference to the siegfried and roy act which was maybe at its peak in the mid-1990s and it's kind of funny because i lived in las vegas for a very brief period about eight months from 03 to 04 you know stretching the from october to may i think it was, and. The Siegfried and Roy, the Tiger attack that basically ended their careers as an act there happened the weekend I got there. So I guess I must have been the bearer of bad news or some kind of bad omen for them. As I said, the jobbers have a very long control segment for a match against a team that is going to be going for the tag team titles at the next pay-per-view. And it's on Billy Gunn, a guy who would become king of the ring in 1999 funny to think about the fact that the smoking guns are actually a king of the ring and the brawl for all winner but you know you just don't think of them as all that great but then uh siegfried ends up putting his head down and a gut wrench suplex there but it's not really a gut wrench he kind of just drops him on his stomach i thought that that was a little strange the way that move was done by billy Gunn. bart gets in there does a good standing drop kick uh I have to I'll give him kudos for that as well and you get a bunch of double teams by them and a Dino Bravo side slam it looks like he's going for but no here comes Billy with the double team off the top with a leg drop which did not look good at all because as Bart was holding him he was lowering him you know for the leg drop so that he didn't you know decapitate the guy a little too fast and the move did not look good at all. So, yeah, maybe at the end of the day, I'm just not a fan of these guys. I, I don't like the wrestling in jeans look unless it's a street fight. Uh, I'm just not. I, I really can't dig that. And these guys were just so bland at, at all times to me. But I want to thank Todd Pettengill. And I don't know what's happening to me. If I, I He distracted me through this match. And we lucked into this pairing here with Todd and JR that seems to be working so far and I think one of the reasons why Pettengill is doing better on this show with JR than when he's paired with Vince is when you're paired with the boss you're constantly trying to impress him and as Pettengill has been there for a little while longer it's now been six more months he doesn't feel the need to say impress Vince he can kind of ease up and be himself and i can't believe i've just spent the last few minutes praising todd pettengill
0: spring break yeah well when are we gonna get rowdy
1: so bob backland is at spring break uh, it's a little bit late for that because we're now at the end of april and spring break tends to be the middle of march or to the end of march you're, you're about a month late on this with Backlund doing these vignettes at the beach and he's wearing the full suit with the bow tie and all that they had played one of these on Raw and one of them on Superstars both of which were better than this one I particularly like the one where he's actually in the sand and the camera keeps listing towards one side to show a woman in a bikini and Backlund keeps reaching over to point it back towards him Here he's just saying, oh, a mind is a terrible thing to waste and there are these girls who just appear to be hanging out by like a car or whatever and he holds up a towel to kind of cover them up saying, you know, we can't have this on national television. It's actually rather lame and as somebody who has really grown to appreciate the crazy Bob Backlund gimmick more and more over time, I think maybe it was starting to run out of steam a little bit at this point coming off the loss to Brett at Wrestlemania it's I, f- I just find it a bit lacking here. Though, I do like the use of the overly big words in sort of a Bockwinkle-esque fashion.
2: You know, there's a lot of extenuous activities going down on down here and I'm going to augment all these people's career down here, buddy, because they're having a deleterious effect on themselves by down here. Matter of fact, they're destroying their minds and a mind is a valuable tool How are we today? You know, we can't have this uh, national television cover-up a bit here. Cover-up.
1: One thing I did get out of that is that one of the girls in particular, the lead one, the first one that you can see is really flashing a nice smile at Bob. So I guess even though he's in his mid to late 40s at this point, hey, if you're a world champion for five and a half years, chicks are
0: going to dig it. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of the Kevin Kelly show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed and the pro wrestling only feed subscribe listen and then rate us and leave feedback today and be sure to give Justin your true thoughts I mean don't hold back after all he is kind of a jerk just listen to Scott and
1: now what you've been waiting for the intercontinental title match between double J Jeff Jarrett and Bob Holly not quite a spark plug this time As I mentioned, of course, the one, two, three kid out with a neck injury, and it got me thinking about neck injuries because I woke up the other day with kind of a sore neck and I was in a little bit of agony because I'm not used to it. It made me think of Sean Waltman and of course the more famous Steve Austin injury. And, you know, their necks got hurt way a hell of a lot more than what mine felt just from sleeping funny on it. And especially with somebody like Waltman the fact that he was able to actually come back and wrestle the kind of risky style that he did is uh, kind of amazing in retrospect i mean maybe he shouldn't have even done it but you know when when wrestling is your life you know you can't really judge in that aspect so this match here we got a country guy country music guy versus a race car driver though as I said that that had been toned down quite a bit here although they're still making the puns it's it's Nashville versus NASCAR here on the action zone and as for Bob Hawley Jim Ross says that he's a great guy which well I don't know let's let's let Brock Lesnar weigh in on that one at some point down the road. As for Jarrett, I have some issues with his ring gear. the costuming itself is fine. I've hated the double J hat for a while, but I think that helps him, you know. it's kind of makes him an over-the-top character with the lights and all that other stuff. But the the stripes with the, the straps coming down his front, which he would carry into WCW as well for his 96 and 97 run, it just looks horrific. It's one of my least favorite ring gear things on anybody. And maybe they're supposed to resemble guitar strings or something like that. But by my count, I think there's five of them or six. It doesn't really matter. It just looks terrible. So Jarrett jumps out on top here. But after the attack, uh, Holly fires up pretty quickly. And Jarrett to the outside, he takes a bit of a powder. I noticed that Holly is a bit mechanical in his work, and now even I'm making puns here. He's really more pit crew than driver. Maybe he's the head of the pit crew. I haven't watched much NASCAR at all over the last 10 years. When I worked in magazines as a circulation manager... We had a race car magazine, so I would keep up to date with what was going on in NASCAR just through this magazine that was on like a four to six week delay, but nowadays I don't even know like what's going on, and with Dale Earnhardt Jr. now officially retired, it's like, okay, this this truly feels like the end of an era, even though he wasn't like a you know champion year after year or anything jr says that holly is setting the pace in this one and then they start talking about razor ramon and the situation that he is in now with the upcoming match at in your house where he is going to face the roadie and double j they say that he's going to sit down with jack tunney and hash out his options here which by the way, I would love to be privy to that conversation with Jack Tunney in 1995. I mean, Tunney was starting to lose it in 91 and 92 with some of his decisions. And by 95, which is the year that he's officially out as WWF president for, well, a variety of different reasons. But Todd Pettengill, once again, very helpful here. He has a suggestion for Razor.
0: Maybe it'll be Bob Holly to team up with the bad guys. Wouldn't be a bad idea at all.
1: Okay, funny thing about that between Scott Hall and Bob Holly, just as people. I recommend you do a Google search that's just, just type in Bob Holly and Scott Hall. And what you get for your results, or at least this is what I got, is a bunch of YouTube videos all in a row that say, the first one is Scott Hall, I want to smack him in the face. Bob Holly shoots hard, dot, dot, dot. And the next one, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall respond and dismiss Hardcore Holly. Scott Hall responds to Hardcore Holly and Shane Douglas's comments. Scott Hall fight with Bob Holly. Scott Hall talks about Bob Holly. So they've had a nice little back and forth on the shoot interview circuit. And Bob Holly originally, I guess, expressed dismay that he was supposed to be in some sort of battle royal at WrestleMania 10 which I don't remember anything of that sort. But I do know that the Razor ramon Shawn Michaels match running long caused at least a 10-man match to get cut and bumped to Raw, which I think is kind of crappy and part of the reason why I consider Owen versus Brett a better match because they supposedly worked within the confines. Hold, the- Although, who knows, maybe that went long too. But yes, there was another shoot interview where Bob Hawley was asked top three crybabies in WWF and he said Scott Hall Scott Hall and Scott Hall which I always like when somebody like names the same person for all three spots like like at Wayne Gretzky's last game when he was named all three of the uh, three stars to the game I don't know why that's funny to me but I, 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 I do that from time to time at games that I'm at so there's no love lost there was never any love to begin with so I can confirm for you that there is, in fact, no love lost between Bob Hawley and Scott Hall. Which is maybe part of the reason why you see Razor Ramon by himself taking on Jeff Jarrett and the roadie at the pay-per-view. And Razor would actually win the match there by himself. So, reminiscent of AJ Styles beating both Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn at the Royal Rumble last Sunday. So history repeats itself there. Double J screws up a Boston Crab here. As he's turning him over, he kind of lets go for a second. But then he recovers at the last second there. And they're doing a cheat move that you don't get to see very often because it only really works with the Boston Crab, where the roadie is on the outside and Jarrett is facing him and the roadie is pushing against Jarrett's head to increase the pressure of the Boston Crab. Cheap moves during submission holds. I I just about enjoy every single one of them. Yeah, the flare reaching for the ropes on the figure four. That one you've seen so many times that I don't even have a reaction to it anymore. But I'm always going to laugh when... R. Arshayster grabs the rope during the abdominal stretch. That's another move that Scott Hall would do from time to time. I remember in the Outsiders, anyway. But the pushing of the head during the Boston Crab is uh, quite a fun <laughs> little move there by the roadie from the outside. And for whatever reason, okay, this match is perfectly fine. But my thesis here, and it seems like a weird word to use on a wrestling podcast, is... These are two perfectly fine professional wrestlers who I just don't really connect with in any sort of way. And connecting with the fans either as a babyface or a heel is really important. They actually go to a commercial here in the middle of the match, which, you know, that that's fine. They get an ad for Skittles. There's actually two ads for Skittles during this break. And I've grown quite fond of Skittles over the last few years. Once again, cuz there was an incident in my childhood where I'm at the Boys and Girls Club. I was probably about eight years old, I think, at the time, and I get Skittles out of the machine, and as I'm eating them, I lost a tooth as I was eating Skittles. You don't you don't forget stuff where you actually lose a tooth while eating it, but yet I still enjoy Skittles because it's really it's not as good as Starburst in my candy power rankings, but But Starburst, you only get like the little two in the Halloween packet. And Skittles, you get a little bit more in those mini bags. They also have an ad for Duncan Hines chocolate chip muffins. And despite my love of chocolate for breakfast with the Cocoa Puffs and all that, as I said earlier, chocolate chip muffins, I don't think uh, I got to go with blueberry muffins ahead of that. Primestar Satellite C-Sports and all that they say $1 a day so when you think about it that's $30 a month which if you're really into sports is not a particularly bad idea in the landscape of 1995 because you didn't have as readily available your center ice package your NFL Sunday ticket and your whatever the hell the NBA one is called full court pass I I, I don't know I'm so out of the loop on that one head and shoulders detergent and the the girl in the ad for the head and shoulders kind of reminds me of the woman on Seinfeld and I could probably say this for any commercial I see that somebody would remind me of someone who played a George or Jerry love interest on Seinfeld she reminds me of the woman that Jerry gets drunk so that he can play with their with the toys that she happened to have like the gumball machine and the easy bake oven and all that had kind of the same hair which is you know the number one characteristic there and then dones which you can take for your back pain as well before the second skittles ad so we go back to the match and double j is still working the back he hits with a sledge off the second rope here and then we get a second ad now there's a Bob Hawley versus Jeff Jarrett match from 1995 really need two ad breaks in the middle of it. And this sort of thing drives me nuts on Raw these days where there'll be a second ad break. But part of it is because of the way Michael Cole like rolls into... As Raw rolls on, which is like a, it's like a cue. When I hear Michael Cole say something rolls on, it's like my cue to go take a whiz or something like that. And Hawley eventually does fire up when they come back from commercial but runs into a boot in the corner and double j grabs the legs and does the rick flair pin with his feet on the ropes or if you are a wwf only guy think of randy savage versus george Steele at wrestlemania 2 that pin with his feet up on the ropes in the corner and the referee counts it but here is a second referee and this would be tim white somebody that i have not really gotten to talk about Quite so often on this podcast and he is out there to mock mental illness oh no wait no that wouldn't happen for several years I mean he's there to change the call of this so the two referees are debating this and the one good thing about this show is it takes me back to the old days of Howard Finkel is working the action zone here I'm kind of pleased that Howard is working the challenge tapings for some unknown reason because he didn't even work challenge tapings in the 80s but here he is in 1995 and we wait with bated breath for howard's announcement
2: ladies and gentlemen after discussion i've been informed that this match must continue absolutely good job good officiating
1: so at this point bob holly is like a football team that just got a turnover and is trying for a quick strike to score here and he goes up top and lands a clothesline off the top and Jarrett kind of is woozy but lands sort of near the ropes and holly gets a one two three but you can see Jarrett put his left foot on the ropes before the three count at the count of two tim white is just sort of meandering in the aisle he's He almost kind of looks like he's not quite drunk or anything like that, but maybe a little addled. I mean, the guy does own a bar in Providence, or at least he did. And at the time of the three count there, Holly takes off with the belt and just immediately leaves because he knows that if he sticks around, there's a chance we might get another restart here. And I do think that that's part of the explanation. I didn't do a complete play-by-play here because there were a bunch of rest holds in this match, and I think that owed to the fact that they actually would have the deciding match for real for next week's Action Zone on this exact same taping. So right here, because Holly is in the back now, Rhodey and Jarrett are protesting to the two officials, and they they do a thing that... I kind of enjoyed from a comedic sense where one of them lies down and they demonstrate putting the foot on the rope as one of them pantomimes the referee, which I, I found that kind of funny. But let me put on the kayfabe hat here. If you're a professional wrestler, okay, now I think the idea should be always at least try to kick out of the pin. You, If you kick out of the pin, that is what the official is looking at when... He or she is making the three count there. So it's important to get the shoulder up first, but sometimes you just can't kick out. So you want to put your foot on the rope. But sometimes the official will not notice that as we have seen time and again in professional wrestling. So what you got to do is when you're laying there and the referee is looking at the shoulders, he looking at you, your shoulders being down, your head is right there, just, just give a yell out, "Hey!" Hey, my foot's on the rope as he's making the count. Draw the attention to that. Now, I know that that might conflict with the planned finish of the match, but from a simple kayfabe perspective here, that is what I recommend that wrestlers do in the future. If, you, if that's the only way you can get out of a pin is by putting your foot on the ropes, make sure you yell and throw a tantrum as you're being pinned there.
2: There seems to be some confusion in the ring as both officials seem to be undecided as to the outcome You better say I'm the champion! as to the outcome of this match However, there are other World Wrestling Federation officials present in the building and assuredly a decision, the official decision as to the outcome of this match will be rendered later on No!
1: So the question is, why don't you just have a panel of officials like it's American Idol or something like that to kind of observe this entire thing? Well, this is 1995 WWF. The money is not being thrown around like crazy here. I mean, times are tough. Things are tight. The purse strings have been tightened here. So, well, that's that's a bit of a pun there. But anyway, official decision later on. Where is Tunney? I mean, is Tunney in the back meeting with Razor Ramon like right now? Why can't he come out Amble on out there and you know actually make the decision right now but hey again this is
2: 1995 wWF it's just <laughs> chaos all the time and Pimpepe, on a for them money I've
1: I have to confess that might be my favorite part of any dr dre song ever just from a lyrical perspective there because i'm a big fan of when rappers mention what year it is like ice cube when he says 1993 during bop gun and then here he's mentioning 1995 ever since honeys was wearing sassoons he's mentioning something that was in the past there and then a funny comment saying Looking like I robbed Liberace Which, oh, what what an image that is Just overall Speaking of uh, the word Sassoon here There's a little ad for Vidal Sassoon But it cuts off And it, I don't know, just made me think Did Gore Vidal use Vidal Sassoon products? Did Gore Vidal ever wear Sassoon's pants? I don't know, probably not I don't really even know Gore Vidal all that much Other than, you know, it's just an author or whatever. So Jim Ross and Todd Pettengill They say that Jack Tunney is reviewing the tape. And I'm sure that this is all gonna be on the up and up here because this is Jack Tunney ninety five and all of his decisions were, you know, clearly fair and whatnot. And they go to a promo for the next week's action zone, when they would actually tell us in advance what we might expect on the following week's programming. And Holy God, this is going to be a doozy.
2: Hitman. Bring everything you got. I'm going to destroy you. man.
0: He's like a bull, rolling over everything in his path. Brett battles the bull.
2: I'm not just good, I'm the best.
3: The best meets the beast. <gasps> Next week on WWF Action Zone.
1: WWF 1995 Literally the only place that you can see Bret the Hitman Hart on the action zone Facing off against Mantor Who is managed by Jim Cornette The half bull, half man character Certainly one of the more regrettable moments Of Jimmy C's career Having to try and put that stuff over But right into the next match Which is also very 1995 WWF's. We have Doink the Clown On the back nine of his career, I think he just about teed off on 15. And he's facing Barry Horowitz. And these are two guys going in the opposite directions. And Horowitz is not quite there yet as doink, as I said. He's well into the back nine of his WWF run. In fact, he might even be past 15 at this point. And we're not quite yet to the Barry Horowitz push, which should take place in the summertime that year with him picking up a win over the yet-to-debut Chris Candido as Body Donna Skip. And truthfully, it's nice to see Horowitz get a little bit of a break. Yeah, he was never going to be a star because he had been an enhancement talent for so long. It's the Paul Roma disease where, you know, he, when you do enough enhancement work on TV, eventually you're going to get typecast there, and Horowitz is always going to be remembered that but it's nice that they were able to find a spot for him at least a little while you might want to tone it down on the religiousness because they only seem to really want to play up the fact that he was jewish for whatever reason anyway they get promotional consideration for warlock for sega genesis not the warlord he's long gone but warlock and they come back to the match here let us know that Shawn Michaels has left the country, which is a bit of a change from three years earlier when Bobby Heenan would breathlessly announce that Shawn Michaels has left the building. Of course, Shawn was injured by Sid on the post-Mania Raw a few weeks earlier in an angle that had implications for a lot of different guys on the roster who weren't even there most notably Bam Bam Bigelow and they of course mentioned the broken neck suffered by the one two three kid which is like a broken neck and he's back in the month of June it just seems really crazy to me just to just to even think of that and Ross says that they will be resolving the IC title dispute before the end of the show which thank god because I would not have been able to go another week without knowing who the Intercontinental Champion, or to at least know that there was a plan in place to solve this dispute between Jeff Jarrett and Bob Holly. Maybe they should have just taken it to the people's court at that time. So, doink here. And he was kind of a victim of his own success there. He's one of those guys where, as a heel at the beginning, he was so good at it, as portrayed by Matt Bourne, so cool of a heel however at the same time this clown character can't quite be an effective baby face at the same time I don't know if that owed to the fact that Matt Bourne either didn't want to play a baby face or whatever but in any event he gets fired the second they do the baby face turn Around the fall of 1993, and he eventually turns up in ECW. I would le- I should start watching these ECW episodes that have Matt Bourne playing a character called Born Again, where he's wearing like half clown makeup, but he's really sort of portraying himself, almost like a reformed clown of sorts here. And this this doink here, who I call Doink the Second, which is Ray Apollo as opposed to Doink the Third, which would be Steve Lombardi, who, I don't know, I, one of my favorite recurring bits by a fellow podcaster is when the Our Vantage Point podcast literally responds to every Steve Lombardi tweet with, is this about Doink, which actually does make sense 97% of the time, I think. And this is really a nothing match doink ends up picking up the win with the whoopee cushion which is effectively an earthquake splash the seated Centon dealie off the top rope which jim ross says reminds him of the ray stevens bombs away move of yesteryear and that's got to be a very rare comparison between two rays ray apollo and ray stevens
0: Hey, have you ever been hugged by someone in green hair todd I got a hug by Cindy Lauper. What time does that count?
1: No. No. You know, with Pentengill being a DJ, it's entirely possible that that may have happened. It's interesting to hear Cindy Lauper's name dropped on WWF television 11 years after her big angle started in 1984. It's, by the way... She is definitely an example of somebody who needs to be inducted into the celebrity wing of the WWE Hall of Fame immediately because of her importance to launching the whole rock and wrestling connection back then.
3: PlaySimination's JT Rizzero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlayStation.com, and we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we
2: also deliver quick hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics On Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, The Feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead. As well as a vertible podcast heaven for comics fans with the Hard Traveling Fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find
3: all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly show as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on placementation.com where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using placementation.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh ebooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar on West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, thehistoryofwrestling.com, and Scott Keats' blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. Placetimination.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world.
1: Now we have Titanka of the Million Dollar Corporation taking on Sonny Rogers. And I haven't done as many jobber bios lately because, you know, you see the same guys from time to time and, you know, there's really no need to go over them again. But the Sonny Rogers guy, when you go to his cage match page... It lists the nicknames for guys, and usually I'll just ignore them because it's like, well, when would they have had that? Well, Rogers is a veteran of Windy City Wrestling, apparently. He's a Chicagoland area native, and one of his nicknames is listed as Mr. TV Guide, which I find to be quite interesting because that's something that lacks meaning after a certain period of time, which is probably in the late 90s when people just started using the program guide on their cable box or whatever and stop subscribing to TV Guide. I feel like people don't know in the current age just how important TV Guide was back in the day and just how many people were subscribed to it to actually know what was on television. I just I just feel that's an interesting gimmick for him to have in Windy City Pro Wrestling or wherever it was. He has an online fan club at MySpace so in case you want to check that out now Tatanka is with the Million Dollar Corporation as I said and this has got the lazy trope of his old babyface theme just mixed with Ted DiBiase's with the Tatanka war cry at the beginning and then going right into DiBiase's theme that's not exactly the most original take there and Sonny Rogers actually starts out here, he gets a takedown and does that fired up Rick Martell thing where he kinda kicks his legs in the air, and you know the thing that I'm talking about, where Martell would do that all the time with the Can Am Connection and Strike Force. There, there's no there's no word for it. If you have a suggestion for what to call that, please let me know. So I'm watching this and I'm just thinking, what happened to Tatanka? To I mean, he's only twenty-nine years old at this point in nineteen ninety-five. You think, okay, he had such a bright future just a few years before the undefeated streak, which just got abruptly cut off with that Ludwig Borga thing, which turned out to be such a waste because of Borga being such a bust. What you may know from study of Native American languages is that in the Lakota language, Tatanka means American bison. Now, Tatanka, Chris Chavez, is actually from the Lundby tribe, which is in North Carolina. I'm not sure what to make of all that, but I just feel that information is somewhat useful. I think his career may have been harmed by a couple of things. One of them being being involved in that incident where Jimmy Del Rey and some woman in a hotel and Tatanka was accused of being there when he actually wasn't and people you know, just assumed because word got out that he was there that he was guilty of something but it turned out not to be the case so like I said with the Duke the Dumpster Drosy drug charges where you can't find out anything about whether he was convicted or pled out or anything like that try to reserve judgment unless something seems particularly obvious to somebody just don't Don't rush to judgment and proclaim guilt unless it's somebody that we already know is completely reprehensible. And seeing Tatanka here reminded me of his comeback at WrestleMania 32, one of the very few highlights of that nine-hour WrestleMania show, or at least that's how long I think it was. So what happened with Tatanka? I covered in 1994 how... His career kind of changed after the whole headdress gets you know, mutilated and then he joins the Million Dollar Corporation after everybody thought that Lex Luger would be the one to join. I'm thinking that this could be one of two things. It could be that he got caught up in the curse of the Buffalo Bills because, as I said, his name means American Bison, which is Buffalo in that language and the Buffalo Bills had just been in the previous four Super Bowls and had lost them all it had nothing to do with the actual curse but have you noticed that ever since then the Buffalo Bills have not been back to a Super Bowl since then and we all thank God for that but I think that also might be a curse connected to OJ and all that because Buffalo Bills have not gone back to the Super Bowl Tatanka's career started to fall apart after the O.J. Simpson case in June of 1994 and I know that all of this might be a stretch because Tatanka does show some pretty good viciousness here and with the knowledge that that probably is a stretch I think that being caught up in the million dollar corporation was just kind of a death knell for everybody involved and the reason for that is even though Ted DiBiase is one of the all-time talents in the history of professional wrestling in this greatest wwe wrestler ever project a place to be nation where the lists are starting to come out we got the top 100 starting to come out now ted dibiase is almost a sure thing to be in the top 25 i will be shocked if he doesn't land in the top 25 however this is not ted dibiase as an in-ring performer just because he's an outstanding in-ring performer does not mean he will be a good or even a decent manager. Just because a guy is a very good quote-unquote worker does not mean he's going to do all the other things in professional wrestling well. I, the example that comes to mind is Bobby Eaton of the Midnight Express, one of the all-time greats, but just didn't have it as like a trainer at the performance center or in any of the places that he was training. It just wasn't for him. And managing was not for Ted DiBiase at all. And it just seemed like... he. Just think about this. What is the greatest Ted DiBiase promo as a manager that you ever heard? What's the most memorable Ted DiBiase moment as the head of the Million Dollar Corporation that you can remember? It's not like he really elevated anybody above where their station would have been anyway. And then he goes on to become in the NWO. And he didn't really add a whole lot to that. He just shows up and flashes four fingers as the fourth guy and then becomes the manager of the Steiners after he becomes disillusioned with being the money behind the NWO. So I think being involved with DiBiase as a manager certainly did not help Tatanka's career going forward. And yeah, the promotion in 95, is, as I said earlier, was not exactly the greatest place in the world right now. But, you know, it's just one of those things where you, you wonder maybe if, You know, things had gone differently. If he could have become a big star, if you see Tatanka, he would seem completely out of place in the Attitude Era. I, I must admit that. He picks up the Samoan drop or whatever he would call it here for the win. And Tatanka, he's got about a year left in the WWF. He would depart shortly before WrestleMania 12, with one of his last matches actually being against Bret Hart. I believe on a Raw leading up to WrestleMania 12. And then you don't see him for a very long time because he did have a career before becoming a professional wrestler in the very late 80s. And he went back to just doing other things for a while before he had various comebacks along the way. Apparently there was a couple of years in the mid-2000s from 05 to 07 where he came in as a babyface again, which I think... He should have been cast as probably all along. Or if you're going to cast him as a heel, break him out from the Million Dollar Corporation and just have him be this, this corporate shill or whatever. I mean, the, the, the whole Native American casino owner thing might have seemed a little, a little trite and maybe even cliched at that time. But it, something had to be different in terms of how they were going to work Tatanka going forward. Say I remember once around this time period I was over at my friend Matt's house And my friend Jim For whatever reason The the computer over there had that song on there I think it was like an Apple or a Mac or whatever It was a computer from the mid-90s It it, it was kind of interesting that it had music And what Jim did, being the trollish character that he can be sometimes, is he played that last part of say goodbye over and over again, and he clicked it about 25 times in a row so that it would just keep playing and playing, and there was no way to stop it unless you, like, unplug the computer or something which would be very harmful to that back in those days anyway whatever to close out this show here on action zone they show holly bob holly and double j in the back and ray rougeau is there because ray rougeau is one of the interviewers and if you wonder why a plain white toast guy like Ray Rougeau is an interviewer consider the fact that he does speak multiple languages so you can make him the French announcer or whatever I mean you know people wonder why would, why did you take French in high school wouldn't Spanish have been more valuable well the joke's on you because it now means that I'm eligible to become head co- head coach of the Montreal Canadiens because they've literally run out of French speaking people to coach the Canadians. So if they were to fire Claude Julien, I might be next in line and I could bring things down from the inside. So they're arguing over the IC title here and Holly is in possession of it. And Ray Rougeau lets Holly know that he is not the Intercontinental Champion. So Jarrett grabs it away from him. And, by the way, as Jarrett is, like, arguing and, like, getting in everybody's face about this, it's kind of hard to take him seriously when he has that hat with the JJ on it. I I know I said it was good costuming and all, but when, when somebody is seriously arguing with you and they have a hat like that, I'm, I'm not going to... I'm really not going to take you too seriously. And Ray Rougeau says that, no, you are not the Intercontinental Champion either, and it's handed to a ref, the belt is, and said jack tunney has decided that there will be a rematch next week on the action zone which was won by Jeff jarrett of course and i don't think bob holly's intercontinental title reign is recognized in any way although i think it lasted longer than shane douglas so it would not have been the shortest in 1995 had it been recognized in any way but you notice how jack tunney doesn't even make an appearance on camera here. This is late stage Tunney. It's probably very similar to Woodrow Wilson in his last 18 months in office after he had the stroke after the Versailles summit. There's probably somebody there pulling the strings of President Tunney, and we, we just don't get to see him on camera at this time. Either that or he was drunk. E- either way, whatever, we have the So now you got two matches on the Action Zone next week with Bret Hart versus Mantor. And you have Bob Holly versus Jeff Jarrett, yet again, for the Intercontinental title. And that is how they wrap the Action Zone for April 30th, 1995. Now, for those of you out there who don't give a rat's behind about the Super Bowl, I'm going to wrap things up in a nice little bow for you right here. And you can turn off the podcast before I indulge myself in the Vinnie Vegas Corner Vanity segment. For next week's show, I'm going to be looking at, and this is actually upon request of the good fellows at the Positively Pro Wrestling Podcast. You can give them a follow at PPW Podcast on Twitter. And I'll be looking at Wrestling Challenge WWF from 1991. The date on that would actually be July 14th. And this request stems from the desire for me to review a show that has Jim the Anvil Neidhart as one of the announcers, which may sound strange, but I like to look at as many different broadcast teams as possible. Perhaps I'll be blown away by it, the same way I was with Todd Pettengill and Jim Ross today. It's, it's highly unlikely because I've been critical of the fact that they threw Nightheart into that one-of-a-kind, gorilla-in-the-brain Chemistry That they had at the time So that's what we're going to have next week And you get the one year anniversary And episode 53 the week after that I'll probably be looking at a WCW 1991 show I'm trying to decide between two of them And I'm not sure what I'm going to base it on But in one of them Missy Hyatt is almost coming out of her top So I don't uh, We'll see what happens there So if you don't care about the Super Bowl You can drop out right now But if you are interested, stay tuned. But first, if you'll indulge me, because Vinny Vegas Corner will be a little bit expanded because there's only one game today. You have the Super Bowl props and all that that I'm going to get into a little bit here. But the only time I was ever actually in Las Vegas for the Super Bowl was when the New England Patriots played the Carolina Panthers in Super Bowl 38, And I was at my friend... Chris's apartment and I arrived at noon time for the 3:30 start local time in the Pacific time zone. But the beauty of being in Las Vegas because I don't really like to do online gambling, in fact, I don't think I ever have. I was able to partake in the many prop bets at the dearly departed imperial palace casino that was on the center strip in las vegas and just a couple of the props that i had in that particular year that (laughs) were kind of crazy and were really just speaking for me yeah there's boring stuff like troy brown over four and a half receptions which i did cash in on because uh troy was certainly a go-to guy for the patriots back then but I had Tom Brady touchdown passes versus Joe Thornton points in the Bruins game versus Pittsburgh Penguins that day. And they each had three, so it ended up being a push. And I had taken Joe Thornton for points because Pittsburgh was a very bad team that year. However, the only reason I got a push out of it was because Thornton had two assists off of empty net goals, which if you know anything about hockey, you'd realize that that's kind of a strange deal, especially... Back in those days when teams were a little bit more hesitant to pull the goalie since they didn't know things that they know now. But my favorite bet from that Super Bowl was a point spread of one sport versus another, which was the Pittsburgh Penguins' shots on goal in that game versus the Carolina total points versus New England. And the Pittsburgh shots line was favored by 7.5, which I took And then when Pittsburgh ended up with 39 points in the game, I thought, well, sure, Carolina sure as hell ain't going to score 32 points off this Patriots defense. And they almost did. They got 29 at the end of regulation. Had the game gone to overtime and they kick a field goal, that would have gotten them to 32. I would have lost the bet, and my favorite team would have lost the Super Bowl. But enough about... That one, although that's that Super Bowl is like a living PSA for not drinking, not smoking, and not gambling. Because during the game, I missed the Janet Jackson halftime thing because I was outside smoking. I certainly did drink too much on that day, and also I don't know why I let uh, Chris drive me up to the Suncoast Casino to gamble after the game, because I woke up on his sofa lying on a roll of nickels that I had somehow. So let's just get right to it. The final Vinny Vegas corner of the football season and a special for Super Bowl 52. I'm going to start off with some quick... Patriots Super Bowl facts. Since I am a Patriots fan, they do have a lengthy history in the Super Bowl, particularly in the current era. So it's kind of, you know, we can maybe we can discern something from this. Number one, I don't believe in coin toss bets. I think they're completely ridiculous here. But it should be said that the Patriots are 1-6 on the coin toss in the Brady era. This does not include the overtime coin toss against Atlanta, Last year, again, I, I'm not entirely sure what that all means, but another Patriot fact, and this actually stretches back even further to the first Super Bowl they were in in 1986 against the Chicago Bears, is the Patriots have led and trailed in every Super Bowl they were in. Yes, they had a three nothing lead over the Chicago Bears. Yes, they actually led the Green Bay Packers after the first quarter of Super Bowl 36. Excuse me, Super Bowl 31. I'm getting confused here. But what's actually interesting, speaking of first quarter points, and you may have heard this elsewhere, is that the Tom Brady Patriots have scored zero points in the first quarter in the seven Super Bowls in which Brady has started, which I I should add a little footnote to that. It would not be the case had Lawrence Maroney not been stuffed at the one-yard line on the final play of the first quarter of Super Bowl 42. If you recall that game, it started really weird with the Giants going on in like a 10-minute drive and then kicking a field goal, and then the Patriots go on a very long drive that actually resulted in a touchdown the first play of the second quarter. So enough who we here. Why don't I get just get down to the pick here. I don't know that the, the Patriots tend to play very close Super Bowls. The most, the widest margin of the seven Brady Super Bowls was a six-point game that went to overtime last year, and, and nobody in their right mind—I mean, that's that was as close as it gets. I don't want to rehash that old ground. But when I look at these two teams, the Patriots and the Eagles, I'm seeing two teams that are pretty even. Yes, there's a difference between Nick Foles and Tom Brady, but there are differences like within the matchups that you really have to break down. I'm particularly worried about the Patriots linebackers against the not only the Eagles running backs, I'm thinking a Jay Ajay, who I am worried is gonna eat the Patriots alive out of the backfield, but just the agility, speed, athleticism of the Eagles offensive front there and how they might be able to take advantage of the Patriots, I think, weakness at the linebacker position, having lost Dante Hightower to the uh, to some sort of injury for the year a while back. I want to say that that was way back in October. Now, conversely, there are ways for the Patriots to combat the Eagles in their offensive line as well, and their defensive line as well. The Eagles like to rotate in a lot of their defensive linemen you rotate them through make sure nobody's getting too many snaps that nobody gets worn out patriots can easily combat that if they go to an up tempo and no huddle offense which is what ended up killing atlanta just the sheer fact that the patriots were running so many plays and the defense was wearing down at the end of the game but with with how close the matchup is and i saw that the point spread was five early in the week and it's now four and a half for the eagles I'm just going to follow what has worked for almost this entire playoffs, which is, in paraphrasing the godfather, take the points, leave the cannoli. So I'm going to go Eagles plus four and a half here, which on Bovada is at a minus 105, so there's less of a vig on that, and I do like that. I would rather get five full points, but four and a half will be enough for me considering that all these Patriots Super Bowls tend to be three or four points so some of my favorite prop bets that are out there and i pulled most of these from bovada and i'm not gonna you know say how much i wager on each of them they're just ones that kind of strike my fancy the longest td prop is the over under is 42 and a half yards and i would go under on that when you get to a Super Bowl like this, they tend to be pretty good defenses here. The Patriots are very committed to not allowing a big play. So that I don't think that they'll get I don't think that the Patriots will score a touchdown over 42 and a half yards. It's just one of those things that it's just really kind of a gut feeling. And that's that's the way it is with most of these props here. I also like Philadelphia to score first at plus one ten. I think part of the reason why the Patriots do not score early in Super Bowls is because they tend to be very conservative at the start of games, where they don't want to turn the ball over, you know, they they want to make sure that they they win the field position battle, and this and that kind of stuff, so I wouldn't be shocked to see the Eagles come down and kick a field goal, or even score a touchdown on the first or second possession of the game, and that is actually a plus 110 for the Eagles to score first there, so I will... Take the plus 110 there. Puppy Bowl props. There's Team Rough. Uh, I like them at minus 115 in the Puppy Bowl. I didn't even. I think it's Team Rough versus Team Fluff. I, I, I didn't even write down the other team's name, but uh, Team Rough. Uh, it's, I, I just feel like a team that's called Rough. Kind of like how I had an unspoiled record on the Bud Bowl the first four years because kind of wish that they would bring back the butt goal It certainly beats the hell out of that stupid dilly-dilly nonsense there. What will the Patriots do first? And the options were touchdown, field goal, or punt. And I went with punt for minus 130 there, kind of feeding into my Patriots start slow sort of thing. And uh, I think that that is a pretty strong bet there. Now, some of the more silly ones that maybe don't have to anything to do with the on-field action, although this, these tend to be even more fun because it means you have to really pay attention to what is going on. And I have one here that is actually recommended to me by my wife, and there was one for Will Pink forget any words during the National Anthem? And no is minus 700, so you're laying $700 to win $100, but as my wife said, Pink is a true professional, and she's not going to screw up the words for the National Anthem or forget anything or leave anything out. so I'm going to lay the money on that one and finally will Al Michaels refer to the point spread during the game And Al has been famous over the years for obliquely referring to the point spread by saying some people are very interested in this play and some people are happy here and some people are not happy the only thing is this said on the prop that he has to refer to it clearly, which means he has to say that the point spread is 4.5. And and there's no way in hell that he is going to be doing that before an audience of 110 million people or whatever. And no is minus 150. I feel like that should be a much bigger vig than what it is. So I'll go with that. And then one final bet that I'm pretty sure of, which is the largest lead of the game, has an over-under of 13. And the under is even money. And I feel like if this game is going to be close the whole way, as I feel like it's going to be with these two teams matching up so closely, I'll go under 13 for the largest lead of the game. So those are my picks. And, yes, my pick for the game is, yeah, I am taking the Philadelphia Eagles plus 4.5 with a minus 105. So only the 5 dollar vig there or whatever you want to call it there so am i betraying my own fandom no i'm just i'm just calling it like i see it just like i did with the pro bowl last week where i was i said to somebody take the dog and and then the dog ended up winning the game by one point but i advised you not to bet the pro bowl and i'm glad you did not so there it is the final viddie vegas corner for the season
0: talking about the Philadelphia Parade after the game, all right? It's 11 o'clock, in case any of you want to attend that. It's going to go from Broad Street up to Washington Avenue, past City Hall, then down to Benjamin Franklin Parkway, and we'll end up at the Art Museum. Plan today, right?
1: So. Enjoy Super Bowl 52, everyone, and do tune in next Thursday for episode 52 of Greetings from Allentown.
2: this uh, national television.